All right, procrastinators, here's your friendly pastoral warning. As of today, you have 12 days left to buy that gift that you've been sitting on and haven't yet picked out. Believe it or not, as crazy as the year 2020 has been, here we are just two weeks left till Christmas, which means for us as Christians in the church here, it's the third week in Advent. We as a congregation to help us slow down, to help us take a a minute to pause and reflect on what Christmas means for us. We've been slowly looking through Luke chapter 1, and just as a refresher in case you're checking in for the first time in a while, in week 1, and you can go back and watch all these online, which is just amazing that we have this technology. But in week 1, Pastor Nate walked us through how to wait well. What does that look like? And last week, Pastor Abel took us through the annunciation, the proclamation that Mary was going to give birth to the Messiah and what that means for us in our response to the gospel, our response to that good news. But today, we're going to look at one word, really narrow in, focus on this joy. What was the spark of joy? What caused Mary and Elizabeth to be filled with such joy? And then, of course, for us today to take that out of the text and apply it to our own lives. How can we, despite our circumstances, experience If you're following along, I want to invite you to open up your Bibles. We're looking at uh, Luke chapter 1, just seven verses, chapter 1, 39 to 45. So if you have a Bible, bring that out. Uh, get an app on your phone. You're welcome to do that. And while you're looking for those, I want to talk through, let's set the scene, look a little bit more deeper at the lives of Mary and Elizabeth so we can then understand what it was like for them in this time. Now, first of all, we learned last week that Mary most likely was could have been as young as 13 years old, probably no older than 16. This would have been an arranged marriage. Mary's parents or guardians arranged for her to be married to this man named Joseph. And what I find striking this year, I mean, I've heard this Christmas story many times. Many of you have as well. But what's striking me this year, a little bit different, is that now I have myself a teenage daughter. And I'm looking at Mary through the eyes of being a parent of a teenager going, Where are her parents? Think about this. You're Mary. You're 13 years old, 14 years old. You get an angel in your bedroom telling you that you're not only pregnant, but you're pregnant with God's child. I was joking around last night with Pete at our service. Pete is a dad of teenagers. Now they're all grown up, but they were once teenagers. Uh, Right, Pete? What that would have been like as a dad if your daughter walks into your room after this experience and says, "Uh, Dad... (laughs) Can we talk? So I'm pregnant. (laughs) But it's not what you think. It's by the Holy Spirit. I wonder, and the text doesn't say this, but I wonder if in this culture, an honor and shame culture, when Mary told her parents, her dad in particular, if her dad reacted angrily, If her dad didn't believe her, if her dad in that culture could have been easy to explain, they just kicked Mary out of the house. I wonder if that's why her parents are never mentioned. And I think that it's a plausible explanation because if you go back to Matthew's gospel, Matthew also shares for us details of the Christmas story. When Joseph finds out that Mary's pregnant, do you remember his first reaction? He was going to divorce her. He was going to end the marriage. He was going to kind of brush it under the rug until then... An angel visits Joseph as well. He explains to him, he says, No, Joseph, this is legit. This is happening. Mary is pregnant with the, by the Holy Spirit. This is the Son of God, the long-awaited Messiah. And Joseph, by God's grace, 
through the Holy Spirit, he changes course, he changes his mind, he takes Mary, they get married, and you know the rest of the story, they go on to Bethlehem. But if you look with me at verse 39, this is very specific language that Luke, the author of the gospel, is using. It says that Mary arose and with haste went to go visit her relative Elizabeth. There's something in the background of her life that's causing her to not just walk to Elizabeth, but to run to Elizabeth. And then once she gets there, this incredible scene takes place. Just hearing Mary's voice, the baby, this is John the Baptist, the baby leaps in Elizabeth's womb. Now, I know that not all of us in here are parents here today, so I just want to explain, if you're not, what this was like for me the first time I felt the baby move, move in a womb. My wife, Amanda, was pregnant with our first daughter, or with our daughter, Madison, our first child. And four or five months in, you know, I know nothing about what it's like to carry a child. I'm clueless what this thing is like. But I got a little small glimpse of it when about four months in, Amanda says, oh, she's moving. And she takes my hand and she puts my hand on her belly. And for the first time, I could feel what Amanda had been feeling all these months. Madison moving her elbow, her head, whatever it was. And there was joy. Now, for us, that quickly ended because Madison was a hyperactive child, like doing ninjutsu and karate inside the womb all the time. And that joy quickly turned to Amanda going, would you just stop moving? But this is not the type of joy not the type of leaping that we see here in Elizabeth. If you go back a few verses to Luke 1, verse 15, Pastor Nate talked about this a few weeks ago, but Zechariah was visited by an angel as well, the same angel, Gabriel. And he says to him, your son is going to be great. Here's some other characteristics, though, that John the Baptist would be great before the Lord and that he would be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And so Mary walks into the house carrying the Messiah, carrying the Lord Jesus, and just the sound of the voice causes this chain reaction of joy. John is filled with joy. Then it says that Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. She's filled with joy, and she proclaims loudly. And again, intentional language here. Mary is telling Luke, the gospel writer, she's remembering this specific detail that Elizabeth cries out, blessed are you among women. And blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came into my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy, leaped for joy. You see this joy. Now let's focus in on that word and take our minds away from what was happening then and let's talk about what's happening in our lives collectively right now or you as an individual can it be said the same thing about you this Advent looking forward to Christmas? Are you filled with joy hearing this news about Jesus? Or has some Grinch come in and sapped your joy on some way? Are you looking at Christmas with some sort of regret? Maybe it's because you're not going to be with family or we as a congregation aren't going to be gathered like we're used to with choirs and bands and the music and the festivities not being able to be with family. Maybe you've had some economic hardships this year. You're not able to do the Christmas gifts like you're used to. Maybe Christmas is not something that is filling you with joy. If that's you, we're gonna talk about that today because it is so easy for us to base our sense of joy on our circumstances, isn't it? 
Now, I want to explain this a little bit more. See, show us how easy it is for us to fall into this. And this is a true story. I fact-checked it. Don't worry. It's on a couple different websites. As amazing as this sounds, this is a true story. I want to show you the home of a family in St. Anthony, Minnesota. Now, this family put up a very simple light display, as you can see. It's got a few lights on the main level, a wreath in the center of the house. And one day, as this family is going through their Christmas cards, they get in the mail an anonymous letter. And in this letter, this anonymous person was criticizing the fact that they had Christmas lights up on their house. And this is what they wrote in part. I'll read part of it to you. It says that the idea of twinkling colorful lights are a reminder of divisions that continue to run through our society, a reminder of systematic biases against our neighbors who don't celebrate Christmas or who can't afford to put up lights on their own. We must do the work of educating ourselves about the harmful impact an outward-facing display like yours can have. Bah humbug. Now, I know you know this. Maybe some of you are watching at home. You don't, you're new to Christianity. You might think something different about pastors, but I'm going to confess to you today, and many of you know this, that pastors are sinful human beings, right? You know this. Okay, so I will confess to you that my first reaction when I saw this article was not to, if it was me and I got that letter, I wouldn't go home and try to seek out that person and try to have a conversation. I wouldn't take down my lights to try to build consensus and do the politically correct thing. No, if I was that person, I would have gone to the hardware store and put up this light display. (laughs) You don't like lights? Well, Merry Christmas. But I'm so happy, actually, believe it or not, for this story because there's so much that we can learn from it. Let's not just let this go by and just be angry and be sapped of joy. There's something we can learn because let's talk about what's really behind the motivation of a person to write that letter in the first place. What's really behind that motivation is a word that we all struggle with. I'm talking about discontentment. Discontentment, not being happy, not being satisfied with what God has given us in this specific moment in time, not trusting that God has a specific purpose for our lot in life and the things that we experience in our life. It's discontentment. In this case, the, the guy who wrote this anonymous letter was unhappy because this person had a faith and had a way to celebrate that faith that was meaningful for them, and maybe they had enough money to put up Christmas lights, but instead of being happy for that person, They use guilt and shame and law to try to bring them down and try to level the playing ground, playing field. And if I'm honest with myself, and I pray that you can be honest with yourself today, we do this maybe daily. And the Bible has a phrase for it. It's called coveting. And there's not one commandment, but two commandments that God ultimately warns us about that this can be so dangerous to us. It needed two commandments. The ninth commandment says this, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. And then the 10th commandment is some language that sounds a little archaic perhaps to us today. But thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's donkey and ox and manservant, maidservant. We're talking about indentured servanthood, not slavery. Or possessions or house or home or wife or anything that my neighbor has. And we gotta clarify this, this is important. We're not talking about the desire for things. There's nothing sinful about desiring to have a wife or to have possessions or to have a home or have you know, a job that can take care of us. That's not a sin. But where sin creeps in and where it goes from desire into coveting is when you have a lack of faith that what God is providing you in this moment is not enough. Do you see the difference? And every year when 
we have our confirmation interview with our students, I asked them specifically on these two commandments, rewrite this in your own words. You know, if God came down to us today and gave us the Ten Commandments in our culture, in our language, how would you write that? And these kids are, are, are brilliant theologians. They may not know it, but they really are. And a couple different kids have said this, thou shalt not covet my neighbor's cell phone, my neighbor's car, thou shalt not covet my neighbor's clothing. And one girl, one young lady said this, thou shalt not covet my neighbor's social media posts. See, she really understood just how deep this coveting problem can get for us. And so let's, again, be honest, let's be real this morning. I want to ask you some tough questions to get us thinking about it. You know, during this time of quarantine, these last seven or eight months, have you ever seen somebody who perhaps is younger than you, perhaps has more freedom in you, they don't have the same immune compromise situation in their life, and they get to go and have a little bit more freedom during this time have you ever looked at them and been frustrated with them, angered with them, jealous of them, instead of being happy for them that they actually get to do those things? Or have you known somebody who's gotten a promotion, or maybe this time is, is it econ- they're having economic prosperity while you and your family are struggling to make ends meet, and you're not going to be able to have the same Christmas like you've had because this has been a tough seven months for many of us. Let's talk about social media. When you are online, you're scrolling through Facebook or Instagram, Snapchat, and you see somebody who, one of your friends, gets 500 likes for a photo, and you look at your photo and you only got five likes, do you start to doubt your identity? Does it start to ding you and the provision that God has given you in this moment in time? If that's you, I've got good news. There is a solution. There is hope for us to get out of this cycle. There is grace and there's gospel, and we find it in this text, Matthew, or Luke chapter 1, 39 to 45. And let's get ourselves back thinking about that. Go back to Elizabeth. How easy would it have been for her to fall into this trap of coveting Mary? Here's what I mean. Again, honor, shame, culture. What it would have been like for Elizabeth as she's walking down the street in her small town, everybody has the same Jewish faith as her, But because she couldn't have children, she was 60, maybe 70 years old. The text doesn't tell us for sure. People would have looked at her and go, oh, look, that's Elizabeth. You know, Elizabeth doesn't have very much faith. She's been trying for years to get pregnant, and she can't do it. She doesn't have enough faith. Or they might whisper to a friend, oh, hey, look, that's Elizabeth. I wonder what great sin she committed in her youth that God is punishing her for not being able to have kids. See, that's an honor-shame culture. It's not understanding the gospel. It's not understanding how God works in this world. But then all of a sudden, Elizabeth is blessed with a child. She's not only going to have a child. She's going to have a boy. She's going to have a prophet. But then in walks Mary, younger, prettier, got pregnant literally without even trying. (laughs) You see, Elizabeth could have easily fallen into the trap of being jealous, of coveting Mary's life. You know, I think about in that culture, Elizabeth had to know that she was not going to get to watch John grow up. She was at an age where she could have died. And she looks at Mary, and Mary's going to have her whole life with her son, potentially. But instead of being jealous... Instead of being discontent, Elizabeth responds like this. She praises Mary. Blessed are you among women. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? 
She's praising Mary. You see the humility? No, no, Mary, I should have come to you. You have the Lord, the Messiah inside of you. And here's the point. Mary found her joy, or Elizabeth found her joy, not in her circumstance, but she was looking at the mission of God. The mission of God was this Messiah, was Jesus. And the mission of God started way back in Genesis chapter 3, the first time when sin entered into the world and the effects of sin started to mess with us. Our fear, our worry, the sin that we see day in and day out, the fact that we can covet is a result of sin. And from day one, God has been on this incredible mission to rescue us. And what Elizabeth has discovered is truth for us today that our real joy comes from knowing that we are part of that rescue plan. Elizabeth couldn't have known that that baby boy would grow up to be a child, would grow up to be a man, and someday would be nailed to a cross. And when he was nailed to that cross, do you remember what he cried out? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So many of us during this time, maybe we've cried out to God, God, why don't you hear me? Why is this happening to me? Jesus knows exactly what that is like. And he did it all for you. He died for you. He rose for you so that one day you could have the hope that this world is not our final destination, that you're not trapped in your sin despite the guilt and the shame that you might feel. Jesus frees you of that on the cross. The mission was you. And then Elizabeth, she's an incredible theologian. She ends this gospel section with this one verse. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And for us today, here's what it means. That when we grasp in faith, as weak or as tiny as that faith may be, when we lay hold to the promise that we are part of God's rescue plan, that he came to this world for us, when you believe, you will be blessed. May that faith, that belief that Jesus died and rose for us fill us with great joy despite our circumstances this Christmas. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, Amen.